Let's go. Hello, hello, my fitness podcast friends. Get pumped today because you are going to probably learn a lot in today's episode with my guest, Jason Colley. And I'm not even going to introduce myself today because you can hear all about me on other episodes, but let me tell you a little bit about Jason. He is a personal trainer and a strength coach, and he has a BS in exercise science and strength and human performance. He is, I might have not quite got that right, but he can correct us. He is also a certified strength and conditioning specialist. He is an expert when it comes to performance and recovery systems. He's the owner of PRSystemsTraining.com. Jason, thank you so much for being here and being willing to share some of your knowledge about the human body today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Good. We've got a lot of fun things planned to talk about, but I have to tell you a funny story for, I think everyone listening will find it funny and you probably don't know this. Uh, so we know each other in real life, not just through social media. We've trained <laughs> at the same, the same gym years ago. And Jason, I will always think of you as the person who taught me how to wear my lifting belt properly. <laughs> so, yeah, that's, I remember those days. It was, uh, I think it was Aurora, right? Uh, yeah, 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 Montgomery. Yeah, mm -hmm. and when I was a baby powerlifter, still pretty intimidated to be training with so many huge powerlifters and bodybuilders, and I thought I knew how to lift, but when I started powerlifting, I was quickly humbled, and one day, Jason, you ever so politely made me aware that I was wearing my belt too low, therefore it wasn't really doing me any good, and you just explained it so nicely. You didn't make me feel stupid, but I still think about that a lot when I put on my belt to squat and I'm grateful for that. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm glad, I'm glad it stuck with you, but yeah, even, uh, even I was intimidated training back in those days with those guys. Cause those guys oh, really are among the, the elite of the elite and had been doing it for decades already. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's also great to be in a room with that many people who really know what they're doing. Uh, oh yes, no uh, yeah. Definitely a sponge of learning. Yeah, and you've competed in bodybuilding and powerlifting, right? Yes, I've competed in, in both multiple times before, so I kind of cross over when, uh, when it fits me, I guess. <laughs> yeah, and that's really cool that you're flexible in that way because it's really hard to do. Um, for people who don't, aren't familiar with either sport, um, they might not be aware of the vast difference, but not a lot of people can do that well, as well as you can. Um, so yeah. tell every – oh, go ahead. Yeah, I think it's just a matter of, like I said, I wouldn't have had a as good of a base for bodybuilding had I not been in powerlifting. I think it had it been the other way around, if I was uh, bodybuilding first, it wouldn't have related and translated into bodybuilding or into powerlifting as much. So interesting. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, tell everybody or tell us about some of the things that led you down a path of where you are now. Um, so I've always been an athlete. I played high school football, middle school football, and then went to college, played college football, um, and then played a little bit semi-pro after that. Um, and then I had always continued and want to continue to train. Uh, it was just something I was passionate about and I enjoyed doing. And so then I kind of got into powerlifting while in college. Um, and then when I got out of college, uh, not of uh, playing football that career, I wanted to still keep competing because I loved competition. And I was pretty good and pretty strong for my size and weight. So I decided to continue to powerlift. 
when I moved home, that's when I linked up with the Lily Bridges and and at Jack Jim and trading around there for years. Mm-hmm. Um, and then eventually it got beat up enough uh, with my body and my tissues that I needed to take a break, but I still wanted to train. I still wanted to compete. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's when I kind of took that lateral step and moved more towards bodybuilding, which is training, but not as heavy, not as neural driven, and uh, definitely more has to do with diet and recovery than um, than powerlifting. I'm always really impressed with the nuggets of wisdom that you share on Instagram and you break things down in such a really understandable way that can help out anyone who is strength training, even if they're not athletes. So to anyone listening, don't be intimidated. Once you see his stature on Instagram, definitely follow him. So even if you're not training to be jacked and ripped, he has so much knowledge that applies to everyone who exercises and even if you're just you know if you're working remotely sitting at a desk all day and even if you're just thinking that like man I really gotta like do something and get some kind of activity and he still has stuff to share with us so Jason um tell everyone a little bit about some of the types of things that you specialize in when you're training both athletes and non-athletes and then we'll get into some specifics yeah so I think the biggest difference with training athletes versus non-athletes, or I'd say competitive people versus non-competitive people, is just the um, in-depth or specialization of training. So if you have a task, let's say someone's a runner or um, a marathon runner, that training is going to be a little bit more task-specific and towards running. So the training is going to be a little bit more specific towards running. Whereas if I have someone who maybe is an everyday um, you know, commuter going back and forth to work who sits a lot, I'm going to train that person in a completely different way that's not so much task-oriented towards a specific goal, but more so towards maybe a specific position or posture Mm -hmm. or type of training like endurance or strength in order to change them. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's a lot more specific in terms of goals you're trying to achieve, and you're doing that by kind of relating the training as close to the task as, as possible. Yeah, that kind of thing can certainly prevent a lot of injury down the road too, right? 100%. Yeah. So again, a majority of the population that I train are competitive um, and or they look to be competitive Mm -hmm. um, and they're dealing with some sort of ailment or some sort of injury or some sort of recovery from maybe a previous injury um, or they're looking to improve. And so my goal and my job is to kind of circumvent that, work through that, uh, take them through that training, um, that training landmine, so to speak, and then navigate that with them so they can, so I can teach them, they can understand, and then they can execute on themselves. Awesome. And we were, um, you know, we were kind of planning what we were going to talk about. You had some really great ideas. Um, and these are some techniques that I think a lot of, uh, a lot of people probably have not heard about, but they're super applicable to anybody and just things that just set a great uh, foundation for building strength, being healthier, uh, whatever it is that your goal is. Uh, and one of them is bracing. So talk a little bit about, talk a little bit about bracing, what it is, why we need to do it. Yeah. Bracing is something that, um, we probably all do without really knowing throughout the day. Um, and that's kind of the issue is sometimes we're doing things, um, subconsciously and sometimes things we're not, we're not doing them at all. Um, But when we're training and we're exercising, bracing is a great way to protect um, the uh, um, the midline, so the spine, 
um, in a way so that the other joints can move around them and so those can work effectively. Um, it's also a great way to create stability if you're doing heavy loads under compression. So let's say a squat or a deadlift or some sort of heavy hinge base movement. Um, it's really a great way to uh, create torque, which is essentially a way to create power and use your muscles. Um, so if we wouldn't create this stiffness within the bracing part in our trunk, um, we would lose a lot of those, those attributes and then can, and can potentially lead to injury and things like that. And the trunk, uh, the bracing parts just basically from your pelvis to your, let's say the top of your rib cage, your lats. So it's a pretty large area. Um, and it involves breathing in that diaphragm kind of bracing in a 360 degree kind of cylinder, um, position and then kind of almost pushing out yeah um and it just really it, it gives the body a lot more stability i know that it, i don't know if people listening are picturing how this works if they've never done it but it was it's a total game changer once you learn how to do it um and especially if you're trying to lift heavier and heavier this is um i know just with my personal training knowledge when i see people straining to lift heavy and i you can tell when somebody's not bracing um mm -hmm. yeah and it, it doesn't even actually take a lot um of tension just a little bit of tension goes a long way um and not only with bracing um but breathing coinciding with that bracing is just as important so you can brace by clenching your abdominals and things as much as you want but to really create the correct bracing protocol you need that breath inside that abdomen to create that it's called IAP intra-abdominal pressure in order to really expand that air into the surrounding tissues and create a nice stable core yeah for sure and that kind of segues nicely into the next thing that we had on the list which is breathing like diaphragmatic versus I don't even know how to say the other kind apical Apical. Yeah, perfect. Yep. Okay. Apical. Okay. Yep. Chest breathing as they call it. Yeah. So tell us about that, like the difference. So the difference, oh, there's, there's lots of differences, but one of the, the main differences I see um, when, I, when I'm working with individuals is the relationship which uh, breathing through your chest changes the way your body's positioned at rest. Um, so a heavy chest breather or a heavy mouth breather, for instance, will, will really have those ancillary muscles, those neck muscles, those upper chest, upper chest muscles, um, shoulders, uh, those type of things will really become overused and overworked and become chronically kind of tight. Mm -hmm. Um, and all those relate to the pelvis and rib cage. Mm -hmm. And so when those muscles that attach to those rib cage are really tight, they end up really just pulling your rib cage up and you kind of get this like rib flare. Mm -hmm. Now that actually attaches to your diaphragm. And so you're actually pulling your diaphragm up, almost creating a stretch like type of uh, reflex where that diaphragm is kind of stretched like a rubber band and then you can't actually use it. Mm -hmm. um, and that creates a lot of things downstream it prevents you from being a more parasympathetic state, which is more of your yeah. rest and digest state, which is a lot of times what people are not in. Yeah. Um, it, puts you, it puts you more into a hyperventilation state, which uh, is more sympathetic, which is more driven. Um, and that can cause a lot of other things further down the cascade. Um, 
yeah, that's that's one of the big differences I see. That's very interesting that you brought that up because I've done several episodes where I've talked about parasympathetic and sympathetic and the fight, flight, and freeze responses, and how that all, um, you know, it's all related to our breathing and how we can control. You know, even if you start to feel anxiety, if you do different types of breathing, obviously that changes. But if you're always training in a certain state, I know that your your body just adapts so heavily to whatever you're used to doing. So it's interesting. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it, it's definitely it definitely adapts easily, and uh, it doesn't want to change as easily. Um, so, which means when you're training in that sympathetic state, um, you want to come out of that sympathetic state as quickly as possible mm-hmm. to recover. Mm-hmm. So you go from parasympathetic to parasympathetic. But when you're used to training in that state consistently and being in that state consistently, you never really get out of that catabolic window, and so you're always constantly on the run, on the run, on the run instead of the opposite direction. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I've heard this and I've, I've even said this to other people. So I hope I'm not, haven't spread misinformation, but maybe you can confirm or deny right here. Um, so I've heard that with people who lift heavy, the, the uh, diaphragm kind of becomes, and you know, the rib cage around that area becomes less pliable over time, which is why people who like powerlifters and bodybuilders have a very hard time to say like, Oh, I think I'll train for a 10 K and do that the next couple months because the breathing is so different. Is that true? Well, uh, I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily say in terms of pliability, but in terms of movement capability, yes, you're correct. So the rib cage does have the ability to flex, extend, bend, rotate, things like that. Um, it's again, the muscles that are connected to the rib cage, which are responsible for mainly the movements of powerlifting and things like that, um, that creates stiffness. Okay. Cause I, um, that, Oh, go ahead. And that stiffness usually is in a certain plane of motion that's continually emphasized over and over and over again. And then when we try and go outside of that plane of motion, that's mm-hmm. where our body doesn't really have the ability or the capacity to, um, use it optimally. Interesting. I find that I find that so fascinating. And partly the reason I had been talking about it recently was I did a 5k a couple months ago. I'm so not a runner. I've never enjoyed running. But <laughs> I did it. I did it for the Wonder Woman swag that was part of this 5k. And oh my gosh, like it was so hard for me to run. And I I enjoy other types of cardio, unlike a lot of lifters. But Man, it was so, so hard for me. And, you know, ever since then, I've just been wondering if I wasn't such a, you know, hadn't had all these years of heavy lifting, if I would be breathing easier. I don't know. What do you think? Oh, I I definitely, I definitely think uh, your body gets used to breathing and operating in a certain way. And then when you try and say, I'm going to make this quick switch and do it and try and do it completely different. It's not, it has no capacity to do that. It, you may be able to do it, yeah. but you're going to do it uh, with repercussions, whether that's, uh, you know, decreased recovery mm-hmm. or it's going to be more of a pain in the butt while you're doing it. Yeah. <laughs> so those type of things. Yeah. Yeah. It definitely did not feel good. <laughs> yeah. And running is running is also one of the, the most complicated human movements to get down correctly. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you think squatting is difficult, you don't have to move your feet. 
Mm -hmm. right yeah. try running we're putting one foot in front of the other with, with perfect extension breathing position it is the most difficult thing and usually uh, again we talked about how people do things consciously and, and unconscious or subconsciously um they just run on passiveness so it's like mm -hmm. they're just coasting mm -hmm. when it's an active exercise that's so interesting and you know like you said you know with squatting you don't even have to move your feet but brings me next to the next thing on our list. Uh, I want to talk about rooting the feet. And I think you, you mentioned torque earlier. Talk a little bit about that kind of thing and how that can help people. Yeah. So in, in the rehab field, not to say I'm, I'm, I'm mainly in the rehab field, but a lot of the performance in rehab field, um, they have different theories about top, what's called top down and bottom up. And basically where you should start your assessment or start looking at the root of the problem. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the times when you're dealing with lower body assessments and lower body um, injury prevention or lower body recovery, um, you start looking at the base and the base is the feet. Mm -hmm. And that kind of cascades further up, up towards the rest of the body, looking at the knees, the hips, the low back, the pelvis and things like that. And so rooting is a great way for an individual to create stability within that, that planar foot position um, and then use that stability to drive the necessary torque components, um, you know, flexion, extension, bending, rotation, things like that, of the joints further up the body properly. Mm -hmm. Now, if you take your foot and you imagine it's a triangle and the, the, your toes are the points and the bottom of your foot, so the, the heel of your foot is the base of a triangle, mm -hmm. that's pretty much how you want to imagine that your foot's the triangle. So you have your two points at the top and, and one point at the bottom. And that nice solid base, that three-point base contact gives you a nice beginning. And there are some intricacies when it comes to um, rooting your feet, dealing with the, the medial longitudinal arc, which is just a big arch inside your foot, mm -hmm. um, how to squeeze the ground without squeezing your toes, um, how to rot rotationally use torque. So there's all a whole bunch of different components, mm -hmm. but basically it's, it's always knowing that you want even pressure between the points of contact in the front of your foot and the back of your foot while having a nice even load in the middle of your foot. And that does a lot of things uh, in terms of balancing out uh, load and position on lower body movements. Yeah, for sure. So if people are training heavy or especially, I mean, I relate to this so much, like when I'm feeling say on a squat day and I'm feeling weak, I'm feeling frustrated. I feel like I'm never going to make any progress. A lot of the times if I just pay attention, cause I have a tendency to lift up my big toe. If I just think about uh, that and mm -hmm. like think of that tripod driving down out of my foot and those three spots, it changes everything so instantly. Yeah. It also depends on, again, whether a person's, uh, like you said, you driving up your big toe, um, that's kind of an anterior uh, line um, mechanism that we use. We create extension in order to, so at that same time you're lifting up your big toe, you're probably lifting up your chest at the same time. Mm -hmm. So that extension-based movement pattern is kind of ingrained in your head. So anytime there's a joint that can flex or extend, your go-to is extension. Boom. I'm going to push forward yeah. so I can get some sort of a leverage and then pop up. Yeah. Um, and changing that brain pattern by rooting the feet um, allows you to use a lot more posterior chain. It allows you to balance out tension between the anterior and posterior chain. Um, and it creates just an overall more balanced position for uh, whatever task it is that you're doing. 
Yeah, I love it. So to everybody yeah. listening, think about these things next time you're in the gym because no matter how much you're lifting or how beginner or advanced you are, if you think about the bracing and the rooting of your feet and all these these awesome tips that Jason is just talking about, this can really be a game changer. Yeah, it, it has to do with everyday health as well. Um, you know, if you're just standing in a position which maybe you're talking to an individual and you're just resting, um, keeping that even pressure between, you know, your foot is going to take pressure off maybe the lateral side of foot, your foot where you tend to put more weight. Um, even distribution through your feet of your weight is going to have um, a relationship to a better pelvis position, which affects low back position. Mm. Um, so it's good for low back health. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of people tend to stand on one foot more than the other. Mm-hmm. And so when we learn and consciously take these things into practice, we end up just seeing small daily changes within, you know, the activities of our daily life that go, that go a long way. Yeah. Um, so they're not only for just, you know, the competitor, the athlete, but they're, they're definitely for everyone to do. And I would say, um, if there's one thing that you, you could, uh, one thing you should do right away um, out of the things we talked about, it's breathing and, and foot rooting and practice those things and get used to those things so you can see improvements. And also it depends on the type of footwear you're wearing as well. Yeah, for sure. Do you want to touch on that really quickly? Cause I know a lot of people just, you know, gym, gym shoes are gym shoes and we know that's not necessarily true. So tell us a little yeah. bit about that if you don't mind. Yeah. Unfortunately, gym shoes, uh, all not gym shoes are created equal. Um, most gym shoes and, and most people are wearing some sort of running or cushion-based shoe. These shoes, depending on the company, depending on the brand, I'm not going to name any, but they will tend to put a person more into a valgus position, which means that that arc of the middle of the foot is going to collapse more. Mm-hmm. Um, this is because most people have and put more weight on the outside heel of their foot, so they cushion those more. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the more fabric or the more products you have between the base of your foot and the ground, uh, the less proprioception or the less ability for your body to kind of feel and know and and understand where it's at in relationship to the ground, which is essential, um, is going to occur. So the smallest amount of of tissue or fabric, whatever, between those is going to be most beneficial. Now, it doesn't mean you don't have to necessarily go out and buy, you know, a barefoot pair of training shoes, but something with a flat sole and not so much of a heel is going to be more beneficial. I, I, I really like New Balances and their training shoes and things like that. Um, but again, even some individuals, when I'm starting out teaching them rooting, I'm teaching them grounding their feet, I'm, I have them in their socks. Mm-hmm. Um, so they can really, really feel what it's like to actually feel the muscles under, the, under their feet. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of shoes tend to kind of just um, dull us out, so to speak. They kind of they make us lose our ability to become, um, you know, close with the ground underneath us. Mm-hmm. And they help you to kind of compensate or almost overcompensate in ways that aren't beneficial for what you might be trying to do, right? 100%. Yeah. So, I mean, if you take a shoe that has a huge heel, um, and that's something that's going to propel you forward when you're trying to maybe get yourself to sit back in your squat more those things aren't really going to be beneficial for you. So the footwear is really important in terms of, um, you know, depending on the task at hand, whether it's squatting, running, what have you. But again, most of the time we need more movement, uh, more strength and more stability in the bottom of our feet. 
and less uh, restrictiveness. Yeah, they're very good info for everybody listening. So if you guys ever see people, um, especially, you know, on Instagram, deadlifting or squatting in just their socks or sometimes even bare feet, <laughs> I recommend wearing socks. <laughs> but, um, you know, that's why. And y- y- try it if you've never tried it. You, you see how different it feels. Yeah, just imagine like, um, you know, if you ever walked in sand for a long period of time, um, maybe you were in a walk on the beach or you were playing outside a volleyball game or something, your feet and, and, and tissues and structures that follow up from the foot, they get sore. Mm-hmm. And that's because your feet are clawing at the sand. They're being molded. They're being used. Uh, and that has a lot of carryover to, um, again, we talked about how that kind of top of uh, that bottom up effect, how it kind of trickles over to the healthier knees, the healthier hips, the low back, mm-hmm. all of those things. So um, imagine, yeah, imagine walking on sand. <laughs> yeah, that definitely. That's a good way to put it. Um, and even more foot stuff that we want to talk about. I'm super curious to know about plantar fasciitis and what you can tell us, because I know at least three of my listeners have asked me about this in the past. I've had it. It's so painful, but I really don't know what you should do about it or why it happens. So what can you tell us? So I think anytime we start to get to diagnoses, we have to kind of be careful Mm -hmm. (laughs) in terms of uh, certain medical professions like to have things diagnosed in order to make things a little bit smoother in their, in their OP system. So, oh, I can diagnose this, therefore I can treat this. Mm-hmm. Um, when the plantar fasciitis is just a really an extension of the calf, the heel, the Achilles, all the way under your foot. And so it's just one big line of tissue that goes all the way down from the bottom of your foot and even into your toes. Um, it just happens to coincide with the ability of the foot to plantar flex, which is point. Mm-hmm. Um, and that plantar flexion is when we actually are creating stability. Um, and when a tissue is either maybe overused, um, not used enough, and then there's some sort of heightened use. So maybe like say someone's wearing a stiff shoe all the time mm-hmm. and all of a sudden they go run a 5k. And then a week later, the bottom of their foot's on fire, and they wonder why they have plantar fasciitis. It's because, well, you just pretty much took a tissue that is not used to moving or being pliable or having any load on it, and you just threw the track at it. Um, And that can also be an overuse pattern as to how you walk or how you load your feet. Um, Or the inability to extend off your big toe is huge. Um, Mm -hmm. If you watch a lot of people's walking patterns, they have an early liftoff, what's called an early liftoff, which means they're never really fully extending off their big toe. They're more so extending off the pad of their foot. Mm-hmm. And now when you do this, you, you lose that pliability factor, that, that mobility factor of that big, t- big toe, which is a, a huge component of propulsion and pushing someone forward that really, really, really works the whole entire plantar fasciitis all the way up through that ankle and through the calf and through, and through the knee, et cetera. So basically, it's an overuse uh, injury where the tissue's capacity to withstand load has been superseded by movement or repetition, and now you have this excruciating pain at the bottom of your foot. Okay. Um, and, and then it's pretty much uh, any practitioner's job or trainer's job to know how to slowly um, reintroduce load, reintroduce movement back into that tissue um, at a given rate, so over a given certain amount of time, in order for that body to recover, so then you can, can, can then can additionally 
uh, return to activity. Okay. And would you classify that as, is it like a type of inflammation with the ligaments or? So anytime you have any, anytime you have an, uh, an injury, there's inflammation. Um, so whether you pull a hamstring or you train too hard and you can't bend something, it's so, it's so stiff the next day, that's all inflammation. Inflammation is just on a level, mm-hmm. a scale, so to speak. Um, and inflammation can be, can be seen as swelling. It can be seen as stiffness. It can be seen as heat. Um, mm-hmm. just depends on the type of inflammation your body's response is. Uh, but most of the time, most of the time, what you're seeing at the bottom of the foot is is tender to the touch, mm-hmm. um, or you're feeling tightness, or you're feeling soreness. That's the inflammation present at that time. Okay. And so, would you? Is it best to just ease up if you're doing? If you know what activity is causing it, is it best to like ease up for a while, or just you know, do more rehab with the fascia, or what do you think? So that that would. That would depend on the the degree of the injury or plantar fascia, so to speak. Again, most of the time it's going to be most of the time it's going to be you've superseded a amount of uh, volume or repetition for that tissue to withstand, and you're going to have to back off. Okay. And you're definitely going to have to give that tissue or that that joint or whatever time to um, recover. Mm-hmm. Um, get that inflammation down so it can move comfortably. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you can have a chance to reintroduce load slowly. Um, and then again, do that over a period of time. Cause what happens is you're just, you're just creating an overuse pattern where you're digging yourself in the hole, trying to climb out, digging yourself in the hole, trying to climb out, yeah. so to speak. Yeah. I've been um, in that pattern. And so, yeah. And so really all we're trying to do is the only way a tissue is going to get healthier is actually if you make it stronger. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you can't make it stronger if you can't use it. So essentially you have to take four to five steps backwards, allow that tissue to heal, then slowly build the capacity of that tissue back up um, through good movements, mm-hmm. through good stability and through proper load management. Um, and then that's how you kind of continually heal yourself. And it's the same for, for any injury. And it's really just the same for any building strength or, or training tissue anyways that's all we're doing okay that makes a lot of sense let's say somebody had plantar fasciitis and they did what they needed to do they backed off they were you know gentle for a while and took care of it till they were fine but let's say that person is then like i definitely don't want this to ever happen again what are some smart things that that person can do to try to prevent it from happening again um so again, single leg, again, if you're looking at plantar fasciitis, you're looking at the relationship of the foot to the rest of the leg. Um, so that's going to be looking at lower body strength. And that could be unilateral strength. It can be bilateral strength. But a lot of times I'm going to look at how that person uses that foot okay. in their movements and in relationship to their hip, in relationship to their knee, in relationship to their trunk. Um, and I'm going to program exercises that require that foot to create stability Mm. Um, and i'm also going to implement exercises that create uh, the need for propulsion so moving forward or perhaps moving backwards Um, and so i'm going to get those toes moving i'm going to get that foot stabilized and i'm going to get them being able to create a relationship between their foot the ground and the hip um, and glute so to speak and so those are the exercises that i'm I'm going to implement Um, and maybe again, there, there might be some activation stuff or some more about prep stuff that's going to be specific towards 
foot stability and the structures and things like that. But most of the time I'm, I'm taking that person and I'm loading them as soon as I can to get the, the body to respond to that load. Um, okay. And essentially all rehab and all training is pretty, pretty, pretty close. The only difference between the two fields is the amount of load that one individual is going to be using um, and stimulus one's going to be using to create an effect. Okay. Um, so yeah, training is rehab and rehab is training. You can kind of look at it that way. Yeah. I love it. That makes a lot of sense. Um, and let's, let's keep going on the path of, uh, you know, just like recovery, injury prevention. Um, can you yeah. give us some basic tips? I mean, anywhere you want to take it really, but you know, I love, mm-hmm. I know a lot of people, you know, if they're not, they're not athletes, they're just in the gym trying to do the best they can. We see so many injuries, you know, knees, shoulders, back, everything. Well, tell us a little bit about like, you know, what you see people doing incorrectly that leads to those things a lot or anything like that. Yeah. So I'd say most of the time, the most beneficial thing for anybody to do, whether you're athlete, non-athlete, competitor, non-competitor is just to move and to move constantly and to move in different planes of motion and to, and to get used to not being so stiff and, um, and dogmatic with the way your body is usually moving. So, um, you know, even if we're training for a sport or training for an activity, the majority of our time is going to be spent doing exercises and things in relationship to that activity. But it's just as important to do exercises and other motions that are uh, not specific to the activity so we don't lose our body's capabilities. Um, And that's going to help strengthen the body. It's going to help create a more robust um, body in order to, in order to do anything really. Mm-hmm. Um, I see a lot of people using um, their, their rib cage or their mid trunk uh, section as a, as a hinge. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of times that tends to, tends to make us lose our ability uh, at the hips. Mm-hmm. So that kind of added saying like, if you don't use it, you lose it. It's kind of actually true. Um, if we tend to bend and flex from the rib cage at the trunk, then we tend to lose the ability to bend and hinge from the waist. And that's a huge component of keeping low back safety. And the, where bracing comes in, right? You do that bracing so Absolutely. that you're not compensating in that incorrect way. And you Correct. have better Absolutely. movement patterns, you prevent more injury. <laughs> so it's yeah, a hundred percent. It's very much all connected. If we, if we learn to move often uh, and move uh, efficiently and move with purpose, uh, then we can do a lot to mitigate injury. We can do a lot to increase performance and we can uh, do a lot to increase the longevity of our ability to do those things. But a lot of times when we're, when we're seeing things on social media or we're seeing different people in the gym, we tend to navigate and copy the things that we see versus uh, going out and looking for the correct information from the correct people um, to help us the best. And so that's why I'm really cognizant of, uh, of putting out information, of trying to do my best at, at helping individuals when they see me train or things like that, because mm-hmm. I know they're going to do what they see, not necessarily what they um, you know, are going to go read in textbook or read up online or something like that. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, I think, Obviously, like 
it's not not any brand new news that you know there's a lot of really dumb stuff on instagram <laughs> and, <laughs> and i think so much of this stuff you know people got to remember especially if you're not an advanced lifter always remember like basic stuff is where at where it's at basic movement patterns until you really 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 master that stuff you don't need to be trying get trying to get creative with it 100 percent. and here's here's the thing even if you do get extremely good at the basics mm -hmm. um then you just increase load mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> and then now you now you have a no a, a completely different uh set of parameters that you're working in because the body is not used to that stimulus of that movement pattern. So just because you have a movement pattern down doesn't mean that you ever should get away from it. Mm -hmm. um, it just means you can increase or, or change the parameters of it. So you can increase your reps, you can increase your sets, mm -hmm. you can increase your load. And that changes the dynamic of that movement pattern. Yeah, And I think that's, that's the biggest thing. I'm sorry to cut you off. That's the biggest thing is, is people tend to get into this, um, love affair with certain exercises or the or the ability to, or love to change exercises constantly and, and and again you should be comfortable with staying with exercises that fit your body mm -hmm. fit your movement capabilities fit your tissue capacities and fit your enjoyment for your activity and then you need to stay around those and work those through different parameters for as long as you possibly can yeah for sure those are all such great points and you know like like I keep mentioning your Instagram, but you just ha you have some really great videos where, uh, you know, people like say, you know, obviously we, we fully endorse free weights and barbells and dumbbells, uh, but machines have their place. But like, I remember you have one specific video where you're talking about the leg extension machine, which has, mm -hmm. you know, it's, it ha has its place. It has its purpose. It can be great for things, but you broke it down. I think it was, you know, it was like, I don't know how many minutes long, three, four minutes long, but like I learned so much from listening to that. And it's so if you're a person who goes to the gym, you're always using the leg extension machine and you're not really thinking about what your body is doing and making the mind muscle connection. This is like, this is the kind of thing where Jason really knows his stuff because there's always going to be a little bit more that you can think about with pretty much any movement that you haven't thought about before in order to get better at it. Yeah, I'm really, really glad you said that. The, I think the key phrase that you said there, um, and something I use a lot, is the mind-muscle connection. And not only using that phrase, but something I say a lot is the intent to what you're doing is the most important factor. Mm -hmm. Because you could be bending over to pick something up and have absolutely zero intent. Mm -hmm. And you can bend over to pick something up and have a brace midsection, a nice foot-rooted position, breathing in your diaphragm, stabilizing your pelvis and have all those intent going at the same time and pick something up and have it have a completely different effect on your body. And that's, yeah. And that's the thing that we need to, to realize is when we're going into these gyms or, or training with trainers or, or therapists or whatever, their goal is should be able to teach you and teach you how to use your body with as, as much intent as possible. So you can focus on what's going on um, while you're training. If it's just passive, um, where you just get in, move this from point A to B, that is really defeating the purpose of what the body's meant to do. Um, you're really just getting in more wear and tear. So yeah, so again, even with the smallest training 
um, movements and even the largest training movements, um, my number one goal for my clients and things when I work with them is, is I want to teach you the intent of this movement. I want to teach you how to move through it with the correct um, intent so you get the best out of it because that's the only way you're going to see improvement in any for any uh, metric. I love that so much. And this makes me think that I think this is where a lot of people begin to fall in love with lifting is when they realize that intent because it, your body just feels so different when you do have that intent. I like that word. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's um, I call it the aha moment is yeah. where you, you have a client or you have somebody, even like when we were using your belt, uh, um, <laughs> your belt phrase, yeah. um, as soon as you feel that connection, it's like, Oh, Holy cow. I yeah. feel the intent. And it, it literally creates, yeah, it creates a physical light bulb that goes off in your head. Yeah. And that response is what we're looking for when we train. And yeah. every single repetition, every single movement we're doing, we're looking for that brain to feel that light bulb go off so we can learn those new movement patterns, absorb them. Um, and then kind of progress with them. Yeah. And then when people have the progression, that's when they get excited and want to keep doing it. So <laughs> that's such a key. I Absolutely. Love that. Yeah. That, that's huge too. Progression's fun. Um, doesn't always happen as much as quick as we'd like, but sure. <laughs> it, it definitely is part of the game. Yeah. Okay. So I have one more thing I want to ask you, and this is kind of a fill in, yeah, the, fill in the blank. So when it comes to things like recovery and taking care of our joints, I want you to fill in the blank of, I wish people would just do more what? I would say I, I, would, I wish more people would do, uh, rest is good, but I wish it would be more active rest. Okay, elaborate on that for us. So, so instead of just taking the day completely off and doing absolutely nothing, I think a good source of active rest would be breathing, stretching, mobility, um, you know, hitting the sauna, hitting the, the steam room, any of those things that bring us more into a parasympathetic recovery state are going to be, are beneficial rather than just sitting on the couch and just not doing exercise. Yeah. Um, because that's going to stimulate a lot of other cofactors that are kind of essential for recovery. Now I can definitely, I can get more, I can get more specific into that too. Yeah, sure. um, you know, so I, I, I wish more people would do direct uh, joint recovery. Mm -hmm. Um, Meaning, I would wish they would they would use their joints more intently on their off days to get more movement, to get more blood flow, to get more recovery, and so forth. Because I think a lot of times certain joints um, are used more often than not, and those things need a little bit more love and TLC. Mm -hmm. And I think sometimes we need to spend a little bit more time giving those joints um, that kind of uh, attention in order to create a bigger robust recovery effect because if you're creating a huge training effect by loading the low back a lot or loading the hips and loading the knees and loading the ankles and you're just going for a 10 minute stroll does that recovery to stimulus ratio seem optimal no probably not right so i think a lot of times i'd wish people would spend more time giving their their individual joints more um time and, and, and more tlc and that might just mean more bending more movement um, you know, isometric contractions, there's different, different systems of training out there, like the FRC system, there's mobility systems, yoga systems, things like that, that can all do that. If your goal of training is to be very specific and very direct, 
then your goal of recovery should should implement that same mindset. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, recovery is is seventy percent of the game, and training is thirty percent of the game. You know, we spend majority of our time outside the gym doing things, and we spend you know thirty percent of our time inside the gym breaking things down. So the more you can optimize your recovery, and that might be doing more movement, that might be doing more recovery based modalities. Um, it might mean sleeping more, eating healthier, drinking better water, those type of things. But whatever it is, um, it should definitely be at a, 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 the same intent as your, your training should be. Awesome. That is such good advice. This was packed with tons of good information for everybody. Um, so tell everyone about your business and where they can find you. Yeah, so my business is PR Systems Training, um, Performance Recovery Systems. So I'm based out of Quad's Gym on the north side of Chicago. Legendary. Um, so, yes, the <laughs> legendary Quads Gym. Thank you, David. David DeYoung, the owner of Quads Gym. Um, so I treat, or I, excuse me, I train one-on-one out of that gym. Awesome. Um, and then I also do online programming and online training for individuals that, that can't work with me remotely. And I also do nutrition as well for individuals um, lifestyle nutrition as well as specific nutrition towards bodybuilding, powerlifting, strength training, things like that. Okay, good stuff. And yeah. your uh, Instagram is Jason Colley PR, PRs. Uh, yep, yep. J-A- At Jason Colley PRs, yeah. So I'll spell it so everybody knows. And it'll be in the show notes too, but it's J-A-S-O-N-C-O-L-L-E-Y-P-R-S. Yes, PRS. That's me. Um, like I said, on there, I have, uh, you can get to my website from there. You can DM me from there if you have any questions about anything we talked about. Um, I have tons of training videos, tons of exercise tips, um, different things uh, individuals can look at. I have articles on my website about different things. So awesome. you can give all that stuff a look if, uh, if your viewers uh, would like. Awesome. And you are really one of the people who like when things shut down in March, you are on it with like, okay, here's how we're going to make it work. Even if we don't have the gym. Um, yeah. Yeah. It was, I mean, honestly, that was more for my keeping myself sane. Sure. Um, because I needed an outlet to kind of uh-huh. keep myself busy and training is, is one of the most important things in my life. So I needed to find a way and it got very old very quickly. Yeah. Um, but again, I did what I can. I think a lot of people did what they, what mm-hmm. they had to do. Yeah. Um, but again, my, my love for teaching, for educating people uh, about their own bodies, about their own abilities and capabilities um, was the most important thing. So I just didn't want to get away from that. Yeah, that was awesome. So you guys can check that out too. Jason, thank you so much. I'm really excited for people to hear this episode. You shared a lot of great stuff. Thank you so much, Kelly. I really appreciate it. All right. So everybody follow Jason on social media. Uh, let us know if you learned something valuable today or what your favorite part was. And until next time, breathe, brace, and root your feet, and always celebrate victory. <laughs> celebrate victory. <laughs>